Welcome to Instruction Interruption, a podcast to celebrate New Mexico educators from every corner of our beautiful state. I am host Mandy Torres, the 2020 New Mexico Teacher of the Year. This podcast is sponsored by the New Mexico Oil and Gas Association and is produced in collaboration with the New Mexico Public Education Department. Educators, make sure to look out for my latest teacher-to-teacher email in your school inbox with information about the New Mexico Instructional Scope and upcoming professional learning webinars. Before we get started, here is a message from the NMPED. I'm Rebecca Jones, your 2020 Census Campaign Coordinator at the New Mexico Public Education Department. Did you know that by filling out your census, you're helping our state receive millions of dollars that go toward our schools for things like special education, Head Start, and school lunches? Today, I'm excited to share a wonderful opportunity with you. We have partnered with the U.S. Census Bureau to make sure you have the support you need to complete your census. If you have questions or would like assistance with filling out your questionnaire, sign up to receive a call from a Census Bureau employee. This virtual questionnaire assistance will be held on Tuesday, August 4th, and a census worker will be available to speak with you between 12 and 8 p.m. It's safe and secure, so sign up today for virtual questionnaire assistance. Together, let's make sure every New Mexican is counted. Follow us on Twitter at NMPED, where you'll find a link to sign up. This week, we're trying something a little different with a Community Spotlight episode. I sit down with Ryan Flynn, the executive director of the New Mexico Oil and Gas Association, which is a sponsor of the New Mexico Teacher of the Year. Ryan previously served as the Secretary of Environment and the Natural Resources Trustee for the state of New Mexico. He gives us a parent perspective on learning during the pandemic, as well as explains how our civic partners can help in uplifting both educators and our education system. The civic leaders need to recognize that this is that this is a complex issue, that the best way, in my opinion, that we can really move forward is to listen to educators and support our educators and, and also to continue to put our money where our mouth is. So put your pencils down and listen up. We're ready to interrupt your day with one of New Mexico's education supporters. Thank you for joining us, Ryan. And I just want to give full disclosure, we are with Ryan Flynn today with the New Mexico Oil and Gas Association. And the New Mexico Oil and Gas Association is sponsoring the New Mexico Teacher of the Year program this year, which is just amazing. And of course, I have to give a shout out to Jessica Sanders, our 2019 NMTOY, who was able to secure the sabbatical that New Mexico Oil and Gas is sponsoring. So we are very grateful to you, Ryan. I am very grateful to you even though it's been a crazy year and not what I expected Teacher of the Year to be, but we're still very grateful that you partnered with PED to, to do this program. So we'll just start, Ryan, and just give us a little bit of background on who you are and how your journey brought you to New Mexico. So I'm, I'm a father of two young girls. My first has just started her educational journey. She is um, She's, she just finished kindergarten this year and she's starting uh, first grade now next year. And my younger daughter is in uh, preschool. So Olivia and Margo are my little girls. And um, so that's first and foremost. I also have a border collie named Rosie. So I have, I'm surrounded by three, three little girls at home. And she's, she's like the, uh, 
she's actually sitting right here in my office. She's the, the weirdest, the strangest. Border Collies are neurotic by nature, and she's probably one of the most neurotic of the Border Collies. But um, Yeah, that's right. I met her, I think, when I, when I popped over there one day. I think I got to yeah. meet her. <laughs> um, my back, like background, I was, um, my father was in the Air Force, we, and then after he uh, finished the Air Force, he, his last base was at Stewart Air Force Base, which is in um, New York, um, outside of New York City. And we lived, my dad worked for a, a textile manufacturing uh, mill and right when he had finished uh, the Air Force. He also was a, actually an iron worker and then went uh, on the big skyscrapers in, in Manhattan and then went to work for a textile mill in that area. We moved around a couple times. Like uh, there was a lot of consolidation occurring in that industry, like big plants and manufacturers. So we actually moved a couple times when I was a kid. We lived for a while in um, Tennessee, in East Tennessee, and um, and my mom was a, a my mom was a social worker for um, a Catholic hospital, and uh, for a while, and then we moved. And she she actually taught in a middle school for a couple of years when we lived in Tennessee. And then we moved um, back up to New York again. She um, she was uh, in social work again. So mo- mother and father are both um, blue collar people. I have an older brother and older sister. My bro- my brother is a teacher, and uh, my sister is a chef. And um, they're they're both older than I am. I'm the youngest. And yeah, my parents are just you know typical kind of Irish Catholic family from. Uh, my dad's from Boston, mom's from, from New York City, from the Bronx. And so, so yeah, we worked. Education was a priority. My mother went to school when I was like a little kid. So she had my brother when she was 18, um, right after she graduated from, college, uh, from high school. And uh, I remember some of my earliest memories, actually, of my mother when she was getting her degree. Um, she used to lock herself in the bathroom to, to, get, to try to find some quiet. <laughs> I, I, get, I get that. Totally get that. Yeah. When she had finals or something, she would uh, lock herself in the bathroom. And I, I remember that because that was the only place she could kind of get away from us where we could leave her alone. We probably wouldn't even leave her alone. But my mom graduated, actually. She went to SUNY New Paltz in New York, um, which is a state university in New, in New York. And my mom graduated at the top of her class, which I thought was pretty cool. Now that I'm a parent, I feel so wiped out by the end of the day that just the idea of working full time and and being a parent who is engaged and then trying to study and retain information let alone just to be like mediocre to me would be a feat but to excel is amazing so um so yeah that's my background new i ended up in new mexico through uh, i really i i loved the state i was um i got a scholarship to to attend law school in uh at arizona and i was clerking after law school for a federal judge in Arizona, I was fortunate enough to have a number of different opportunities when I finished law school. Thought I was going to go to Denver. To be honest, I had a lot of opportunities in Denver, and I went there. And I thought Denver is cool, but it takes a lot of work. To, it's like an hour or two to get out to the mountains. And I remember coming to Santa Fe, and I had a job, a couple job offers here. And I thought, like, this is beautiful. I get, to, I, I can just walk and be on a mountain and be outside. And so, um, so I just, I remember we came. And we, we, we had decided we'd stay here for a year and I just fell in love with it. Now I've been here for 14 years in New Mexico now. So I, this is home. What part of Boston was your dad from? I lived in the Boston area for a couple of years. My dad's originally from Jamaica Plain. 
uh, they call it JP or Jamaica Plain. Yeah. Then uh, when he was 12, they moved to Brockton, Massachusetts, which a is a little Yeah, it's known for yeah. Brockton, called the city of champions. They had a bunch of famous old, and back in the day, there was a couple of famous boxers, uh, Rocky Marciano and Marvin Hagler were from yeah. Brockton. Uh, my dad would like to talk about my my mom. My mom's from the Bronx, and my my dad met my mom through his cousin, who's his best friend. I call him my uncle, my uncle Bob, and uh, he would talk about the difference between Brockton when he would go visit my dad in Brockton. Like if the kids would get in a fight, they would get in a fight, and in the Bronx, where he was from, they wouldn't actually want to get in a fight. They would talk about fighting and then hope people lost their nerve and walked away. But it was kind of <laughs> tougher area, I guess, Brockton, Massachusetts. So you spent a year as a high school teacher in New York, English teacher, I believe. Um, what did you take away from that experience? Yeah, I taught. So I taught for two years uh, between college and law school. I didn't, I didn't know if I realized it the same way when I was a student, but you know, when, when there's a genu genuine enthusiasm for what you're doing, I think as kids, if you, if you have a teacher who you can tell really is like enjoying the material and is enthusiastic about the information and about what they're doing. That type of enthusiasm is infectious. And I found that when I was a teacher, I found that, you know, that when I was, you know, on days when I, when I had energy and I knew like I was, I was into it, kids like really responded to that energy. And I remember I, I loved, I loved that connection with the students I didn't, you know, I think before I taught, I didn't quite appreciate how much time you need to spend outside of the classroom in order to get an hour, like to, to, to teach one class for one hour in a classroom, you really need to spend a couple hours, like, like for me at least, but that first year especially, it took me a long time. I mean, I was spending three or four hours of outside prep every class just on, there was you know some material that I had, had been familiar with, but there's much different between having read The Great Gatsby and then teaching The Great Gatsby. And so, you know, really that was something that I just remember there was so much time outside of the classroom. So like the idea of a teacher, you know, just because you, you're in the classroom, let's say for five hours a day, that doesn't mean you're working for five hours a day. You, in order to like make those five hours work, you have to spend a huge amount of time outside of the classroom really preparing. And that's not even including all the additional time then you have to spend grading work and staying up. So I admire what teachers do, but I, I think it's, a, it's just a, a huge amount of work has to go into, into the job and not in order. And, and I, I don't think you can fake it. I mean, kids, they know like that. That's why I said about the enthusiasm. If, if you're going through the motions, I think kids will respond to that energy. If they feel like you're not into it and you're not prepared and you're not enthusiastic and in command of the material, I, I feel like that will set a tone for a classroom. And uh, if you're into it, I think then um, the kids will gravitate to that energy. And then, you know, I, I worked with a lot of kids um, at, at my high school. We had a lot of kids who had, and uh, forgive me, I hope this is the, but they were, we call them learning disabilities. Mm -hmm. um, and they were outstanding students, but they, um, we had kids who, had, who were dyslexic. Um, we had kids with attention deficit disorder, you know, all, all different kinds of documented learning disabilities. And one of the things that I thought was actually great, the, 
we had about a third of the students in our school did have some type of documented learning disability, but the curriculum mixed. We didn't, you know, some of those kids would have special um, instruction periods where they would work with a learning skills coach um, on different uh, material, but we didn't, you know, our classes were fully, you know, it wasn't, they, we had kids who didn't have learning disabilities learning right alongside kids who did. And for me, it made me a much better educator because, you know, I would work closely with their learning skills coaches or tutors. And we would just talk about how, how people, and it's not just for a kid. I feel like I learned it through having to teach and work with kids with a learning disability, but I actually think it's just good teaching where we would talk about how people process information differently. You know, it wasn't just like you stand at a class, at a, at a chalkboard and present information one way, you know, that people process and learn differently. And I feel like that's true for anyone, regardless of whether you have some type of a learning disability or not. And so I learned more about myself in terms of how I process and learn information. And also, I think it challenged me to become a better educator. Yeah. And, you know, in teaching, it's like every year is different because you get a new group of kids and um, you have to try different things to help them learn. And yeah, it does take a while to to be able to really understand how to reach individual kids. And I, you know, I think a lot of parents have been kind of understanding that a little bit more through this pandemic when they've been at home <laughs> with their kids. And, you know, I just been hearing a lot of parents just grateful for the teachers because they realize that it really is a, a difficult job. And you're right, one that does take a lot of hours outside of, of the school day. Can you just talk a little bit about your own daughter's experience? You said she just finished kindergarten. What was that like? I mean, gosh, the, I remember, um, I'm going to butcher this quote, but President Obama had this quote about being, um, about like being a father is like walking around with your heart exposed to the world. And I'm paraphrasing, it was something along those lines. And I feel that way, gosh, every day, but especially when you send your children off to school, like I'm not... Um, not super, I'm getting more sensitive as I, as I've become a father, but <laughs> sending them off to school was um, like walking her that first day and seeing her, you know, having, like I walked her up to the door, but then she walks in the door. She has to do it on her own. You know, it is, it's, um, I respect, I respect the teachers from what I did and what we've, my, from my family, but um, you know, I'm entrusting my daughters to the people I care about the most to others to, to work with them. And um, that's like the greatest, most important part of my life is them. So I, I'm just amazed. Her teacher at school, she was great. And she was, uh, she's, she's been educating for, gosh, I don't, I think she's been teaching for over 30 years, like 32 years, maybe. Um, wow. Miss, Miss Scarborough, Pam Scarborough. She's at Wood Gormley Institution right down the street here. She was, um, I, I just, I respected her before we had to do the pandemic stuff and I respected her more after having to deal with the pandemic because, you know, in, in a week, like you all, all of you all had to then just learn how to do things completely different. And she was, she was good. Um, I really admire kind of how she approached my daughter. She really got to know, I could tell when we would meet with her, you know, she was very structured and organized and my daughter really loved her um, and she loved it was fun to me that my daughter loves, like she loves math. And um, that was really kind of interesting to me, but um, that's like one of math and art are her favorite subjects. Um, she's not as um, probably not as into phys ed as I, as I was, but uh, 
my younger one, she seems to be a little more sporty, so we'll see. But um, no, it, it's it's amazing too. You got again, these are things you all know, but the 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 growth you would see, like we we read to our girls every night before bed, and um, and just how quickly she would be that that at that early stage too, the gains that kids are making is remarkable. I mean, the growth that's occurring from week to week with with in all kinds of different ways not and it's not even just like in terms of reading where she's now learning sight words and starting to sound out words but then just in their their penmanship their handwriting i mean i her i didn't like i i know her kind of the scribble marks she would make before kindergarten and she had good preschool instruction and they were outstanding as well but just within a couple of weeks, I could start to see her, the letters, like, and I could read what she wrote. And, uh, and it was not perfect by any stretch, but the, the, the growth that's occurring at that age is just, it's like exponential. It's like from day to day, you, can, you really can see a huge change from a week to week. So it was great. I think the, they did a great job. The school, we've been very lucky. I, I, I wanted her to to go to, you know, to this school. I, I, it's right down by my house. And so I, I like, I wanted to be able to walk her to school and things like that. And I've been just so happy. What a good, I think the teachers run a great, do a great job. And uh, I think the, the, you know, administrators, the principal is uh, really, they just really seem to take pride in what they do and they're engaged. Yeah. The growth is just, it's crazy because like as a parent, now I'm seeing it differently now that my daughter, my oldest is in school, right? I, I've always just seen it, the growth from like a teacher perspective. And you're so busy worrying about, you know, 20, 24 students. You don't really have time to sit back and really see like everything they've done till the end of the year. So it's crazy with my daughter because now she's, she's really into reading. And so now she doesn't, you know, necessarily like me to read to her. She just likes us to sit together and she, because she started on chapter books so she likes to read her chapter book while I'm reading my book and um, that's what she likes to do at night now so it's just amazing I'm like how did she even get here it seems like just yesterday she was doing her you know learning the ABCs and now she's like on the chapter books and it's just crazy but it's fun though it's it's good it's 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 nice to have the parent perspective too because you know I've just always had the teacher perspective but now yeah. I'm seeing her learning and um, it's really exciting Okay, so let's turn a little bit to your work with Namoga and all of the things that you guys do for education. First, just talk about some of the ways that Namoga is giving back to children and communities through education and why you've put education on your priority list. Well, we've, we've really made it a priority over the last couple of years. And I think we're trying to work first and foremost to support educators we all want the same thing, which is we want our our students to get the best education that they can. And um, in order to get for our students to really be able to thrive, we need to make sure it's it's not there's no silver bullet. And I feel like personally, um, education issues the the worst thing that can happen to any issue, in my personal opinion, is for it to become a political issue because then it just becomes people shouting on each other and, uh, and the issue actually ceases to matter. It just becomes a, a source of division and um, people no longer really, I think, thinking about how do we solve the issue. It's just like, you know, oh, you say that, so I'm gonna say this and all these kind of back and forth. And I think that our industry is really, is the largest private employer in the state. And so we've been, we've had a lot of conversations that have been occurring at the senior executive level where we were trying to figure out how do we, 
how are we going to be able to recruit and, and, and retain the workforce we're going to need for our industry for the next 20 years? And so those have been conversations that have been occurring for a couple of years now with really an emphasis on a need to identify more homegrown talent in, in terms of you know, an education pipeline for the industry, as opposed to certainly in New Mexico, seeing us um, having to recruit outside of the state to meet our needs uh, for, for workforce. And um, we expect, uh, even though we're the largest employer now, we expect that our employment needs are going to continue to increase over the next tech, 10 to 20 years pretty dramatically. And these are, the industry has become much more high tech. Um, I mean, we have, you know, you, you really need a scientific, it's not required, but the majority of our jobs have a scientific or an engineering um, component. And so we, we do really want an educated workforce just, um, you know, also certainly people who are adept at, at computer, at programming, and IT is, is a huge component as well. We're highly, um, very tech-heavy industry as well. So we really need a, a homegrown workforce. The, the top consideration when they're choosing whether or not to um, relocate for a job is what's the, what's the public education system like in that community? You know, there's other considerations, but time and again, that is by far and away the number one issue. So that's, that's attracting, when we have to attract workforce to New Mexico, that's a huge consideration. But then just fundamentally, we've done a lot of work and learned that people, if you grow up in a community, you're more likely to then stay there and raise a family than if you have just kind of been, you know, if, if we recruit someone to come to a community, there's a chance they'll stay, but there's also a likelihood that after you know four or five years they'll leave and take a job in another you know someplace else. And certainly, it's it's more, it's better for us to have people come in and start with a job and then progress up, you know through their career path and stay in one place. It's um, it's just it's better all around for the employers. So certainly, there's a you know, we have a vested interest in ensuring that we have a strong education system. So I don't want to, um, you know, there's, there's, there's definitely a business component here. We are an industry that is, you know, we, we are, we're public, most of our companies are publicly traded companies who are required to get results and getting good results in the business arena means having great employees that can do great things for your companies. And so, so for us, fundamentally we need good schools and um and we want a homegrown workforce so so it was critical to our business first and foremost um but i think stepping back one of the things that as we kind of talked about this we're good at drilling wells and we're good at putting in uh, pipelines we're good at managing pressure we're good at you know all the things we're good at oil and gas that's our that's what we're good at we, we don't teach. You teach. You're an expert when it comes to education. And so our approach has been at Namoga has been rather than um, we don't want to get involved in a, in a politicization of this issue. We don't think Democrats and Republicans and independents and Green Party, it doesn't matter what your political background is. I do think fundamentally everyone cares about having a strong education system. And so our approach has been let's steer away from talking to politicians about what's the right way to move things forward. Our, our approach has been, let's let the experts, you, teachers, educators, let's, let's figure out how we can support you and give you a voice to be leaders and to move things forward. So that was why, 
like, like sponsoring teacher of the year. We just felt like that was a no brainer. We don't, we'd rather, we'd rather try to like invest in, in the teacher of the year program in order to allow you to develop professionally and then get out of your way. Like we, we, we want you to, we want you to be, you're a leader, you're an expert. And so our job is to just shut up and listen. And so that's kind of, that's been our approach is like, let's not make this a political issue. Let's not support this politician's initiative or this person's initiative over here or there who's, who's you know, doing things to get elected or to deal with kind of more of a political um, component to it. For us, let's just let educators, let's try to f- invest in platforms for you all to go out and uh, heart, not only kind of hone your skills and develop professionally, but then like with you, you get, you have a voice and let's let, let's just try to figure out how we can help amplify your voice so that you can help. We don't know the answer. We can, if you needed, if you needed to figure out how to solve a complex problem in the oil and gas industry, then you can call us. Otherwise, in terms of improving educational outcomes, I'd rather talk to you and let you do that and we'll shut up and listen. So that, that's how, that's been our approach really has been um, really doubling down on certain programs. Teacher of the Year has been big, but we've also, you know, we've supported the New Mexico out of school time program. And uh, we've also done quite a bit of work with, um, with various STEM education programs. Um, we have this discovery STEM program with discovery education that we've been working on with a number of school districts. Our Brighter Future Fund that we launched it's a community giving program, and um, a, one of the central platforms of that is for uh, education and trying to fund education initiatives. So we've we've really tried again to not approach this from a kind of a political standpoint, but really from a um, kind of giving, identifying good people and programs that provide platforms for experts to go out and to move the ball forward. Uh, and like I said, I, I I'm spending. I, you know, I, I have charities that I contribute to personally. My organization, I don't want to make it sound like we're out here doing this just out of the goodness of our heart. We believe there is a strong business aspect to having, having outstanding schools and supporting teachers. It, it's good, it, it really is, it is a good business decision. So it's not like this is just philanthropy for the sake of, of doing something nice. And, and we, we are certainly happy to be supportive of good people and programs that they're passionate about. But we, we're, we really believe this is critical to our business success. Is, and not only is it critical today in terms of attracting workforce to New Mexico, it's gonna be critical to our survival 10 years from now, 20 years from now. If we don't have a good homegrown workforce, then it's, it's ultimately gonna hold us back from being able to achieve the type of results that we really want to achieve. So we, we view this as a very strong business proposition and that supporting your program is great. And we actually think that it's a huge investment in our own industry. The one great thing has been my board of directors. You know, we, we, when I proposed this to my board of directors, you know, people were supportive, but it was different. It was something very different than we've done organizationally. They were supportive though. And I think the more we've done it now, they absolutely love it. And so it's, um, that's been really great is the buy-in from our, um, our industry and the leadership in our industry has been, has just been great. So I have two thoughts on that. So my first one is I think more people need to hear that shut up and listen. <laughs> I don't think there's a teacher out there who doesn't, who won't appreciate that, <laughs> you know, you know, let, it, let us, you know, let us help make decisions because we're the ones on the ground doing the work. So that 
I very much appreciate that aspect. I think it, it transcends all of the industries. I mean, even teachers, right? We're trying to do our own homegrown teachers where they're going to stay in these communities um, that are very rural. And so I think there's a lot of connections there between education and business. And, you know, I sat in on a CTE, which is career and technical education regional meeting and heard a lot of business owners saying the same thing that you were that, you know, their industries rely are going to rely on having our students prepared for the jobs that are here in New Mexico. And how are, how are we going to make that happen? So my next question is, you know, what is your vision on how civic leaders and community leaders, how can they better collaborate with principals and superintendents and even with individual classrooms? How can we go about making that happen to ensure that, first of all, our children, our students know what opportunities are out there? I think a lot of students don't even know what jobs there are in New Mexico that they could be shooting for as a career. Um, but how, how do you think that collaboration can work better with more of our civic organizations? Yeah, I think if what you said, man, you really just like, you have to just listen more. I'm, I'm being, I'm trying, I'm being like very careful with my words, which is probably not as entertaining, but um, like when you politicize any of these issues, it ultimately is the biggest obstacle to actually improving outcomes and policy. So whether it's you know people talking about, I feel like everyone's looking for a cheap, quick fix. And so, and, and that team, that's that works well when you're dealing with like an election cycle or a soundbite is like, let's take this really complex issue. Let's talk, let's take education and let's let's boil everything down to a single issue that it's like we're gonna have teacher evaluations and that we're going to reform that and that's going to fix everything or we're going to deal with, you know, we're going to, uh, I mean, like you name it, there's like 50 different issues. I feel like that have become political lightning rods when it comes to teaching, whether it's teacher evaluations, whether it's funding for a, t a particular program, whether it's, um, you know, providing universal pre-K, whether it's social promotion, whether like there's all these issues that, that honestly, I don't know a lot about these issues. I just know that like once they become these kind of like political, it gets down into sound bites and it's like, oh, okay, that's, that's it. It's that easy. And that's, that's not the right way to, this is a complicated problem. And like you were saying, you have classes with dozens of kids every single year who come into your classrooms from different backgrounds, with different needs, with different, you know, different environments at home that they're having to navigate. Some some are dealing with you know incredible challenges where that in terms of poverty or um, situations that are difficult that they're walking into the classroom every day with some are have some type of issue that they need some additional attention on um, you know this is this isn't like there's no silver bullet here so like like the worst thing you can do is boil down an issue that is as complex as this and into some type of like sound bite or a like an up or down issue and that and that's the way kind of I feel like if the civic leaders need to recognize that this is that this is a complex issue that the best way in my opinion that we can really move forward is to listen to educators and support our educators and and also to continue to put our money where our mouth is I mean you you can't like funding for education is critical and we need to make sure that that doesn't mean that you just write blank checks and, and you, there, there doesn't need to be accountability for where, how investments are being made, but you think about the personal decision each of us make and where you spend your money 
you know, really demonstrates where your priorities lie. And so if education is a priority, we absolutely need to make sure we're paying teachers. I mean, we can't, how are we going to recruit people to go in there? And like I was telling you before, I recognize that, you know, you, you spend a full day teaching. That's not it. Like once you're done for the day, you still got a lot of work to do to prepare for the next day. And so we need to make sure we're paying, we're investing in support, not only supporting you in terms of listening, but also we need, we need to be paying teachers uh, more. And so I do think it, 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 there's no silver bullet though. Like the worst thing you can do is boil these issues down into this, these kind of political sound bites where it's, if it's this thing, you know, this thing, these are the good guys, these are the bad guys. And this is like, this is the issue, it, depending on where you sit, you're good or bad. And then that'll fix everything. That's just not how this works. These are, this is such a complicated issue and you need a truly need a multifaceted approach from, and you really need to step out of the way and let the experts guide these issues. And it's almost a better issue to be handled by experts than it is. It shouldn't be something that is being, you know, these critical decisions should be being made by educators. They shouldn't be being made by people who are on a up for reelection every two or four years. I mean, it, it just, these are issues that are bigger than that. So, um, so I do think listening, empowering educators, giving you platforms, and also, you know, really trying to, if you're going to, if you're really going to say you support teachers, you have to do more than listen. We need to make sure they're being compensated at a level where they can support their families. They can feel like, you know, that their work is being valued. We just, we want you to be successful and we want you to feel like you're, you're supported. Thank you to Ryan and Namoka and all of our civic partners who support our schools across the state. Be sure to catch our upcoming back to school episode with tips on how to approach this new reality of online learning. May your tech skills be on target and your last days of summer be going by slowly. Thanks for listening.